Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsudliff.com. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Okay, so hi everyone and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sada Flodi, and today I'm so happy to have in uh, the recording studio with me, Dr. Uzma Jafri. She is a board certified family practitioner as well as a geriatrician. She is in solo practice uh, in West Phoenix, Arizona, and she has her own podcast, Momming While Muslim. She is the co-host of, along with Zeba Hassan. So welcome, Uzma. Today, the episode is going to be everything you needed to know about puberty in boys. And uh, Uzma is going to tell us lots and lots of information and fill in my gaps. <laughs> so before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that I'm not giving any type of medical advice or religious advice. So if you have any concerns at all about your health, please speak with your medical provider. And if you have any questions about your religion, please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. So, Uzma, welcome, welcome. And, Thank um, you so, so much. And I'm going to affirm the same disclaimer. <laughs> None of this is medical or religious advice. This is just two doctors talking. Yes, absolutely. So, Uzma, um, if you wanted to tell our listeners uh, a little bit more about yourself and a little bit about momming while Muslim, and then we can get into the topic of puberty um, with boys. Sure, sure. So Momming While Muslim um, is kind of the brainchild of my co-host, Seba Hassan. She's the founder of Momming While Muslim. And um, the impetus was, you know, flying while Muslim. And because Zeba is white passing due to her background, she has never been stopped at the airport and has never, you know, had anything happen to her. But her children, because they're mixed, did. Uh, or one of her children did at the time because he hit, guess what, puberty. <laughs> so that's when uh, TSA started paying attention to him. And the experience left the family pretty upset and bewildered and confused. And there were no resources out there for them to go to. So she called me and was like, you know, what do I do to support mm-hmm. my kids? So I, you know, sent her to a couple of websites and then was like, for the love of Allah, please make sure if you're a Muslim, travel with your passport because her pubescent son did not have any ID and he's six foot one. They would not believe that he was a pubescent male. And, you know, the only way they would have found out is if they stripped him and figured that out or got dental records, right? Which you're not going to do at TSA. So, you know, she was like, when I gave her the information, she said, would you be willing to come on a podcast to talk about this? And I was like, sure. What's a podcast? Um, So this was about almost four years ago now. So we're in our third season, alhamdulillah. And, um, you know, we're just talking about all things that Muslim American moms need to know in order to raise their kids. Cause we were born and raised here. And so we've seen America pre nine 11 and then post nine 11 and all of the changes that have come, especially the last two decades of just straight up Islamophobia in this country. So we're breaking it down for any of our listeners. So we'd love anybody to come and check us out. Awesome. 
Well, you guys definitely have a lot of followers on Instagram. I know that. Um, but And you do so many um, different podcast themes that I've noticed. So I think that's pretty awesome as well. Yeah. So um, going on to our topic today, which is puberty in boys. So I'm just going to be very transparent and let everyone know that I Google this <laughs> because <laughs> I am a gynecologist. My focus is on women and girls. And so, you know, what I learned in medical school about puberty in boys was a long time ago. So I'm just going to let you know what I read. And then Asma, um, Uzma, you being uh, a family practitioner and knowing all this way better than I do, um, hopefully you'll just fill in my gaps. So I hope so. You said all about puberty, and it's like, oh, I'm not going to do all about puberty, but we'll certainly like hit the major points. I think that people need to, that people are most curious about. I think, absolutely, absolutely. So, okay, so I know that puberty in boys usually begins around the age of what, like ten to fifteen, and um, one of the first things that they may notice is that they have a change in their testes, right? Their testicles and their scrotum. Um, and then perhaps they go through a growth spurt. And then they also notice like acne and some other physical changes like their hands and their feet get bigger, I guess. And um, voice change. <laughs> and voice changes. Yeah. Absolutely. Acne. We talked about acne. And then, of course, the size of their penis increases. And uh, they may have some, you know, uh, ejaculation at night, which I think, um, right, nocturnal emissions, they call them. And, um, and yeah, and they may have erections that may or may not be in relation to some type of sexual stimuli, right? And which is what's called non-concordance, which actually I've been reading about in terms of for women, actually, Ooh. more like arousal in women. But I guess you and I can talk about that another time. <laughs> focused on, on more on men, but and on boys. So, and I think that's actually, you know, when we get to that topic, I think that's something that you and I should spend a little bit of time talking about because I think that sometimes boys get embarrassed um, that they may have an erection in the middle of doing something that's, you know, I don't know, just happens, and mm -hmm. then they feel embarrassed and they don't know if it's something that they did but it's something that's very natural. So I'm going to give the floor to you and um, listen to what you have to say. Great. Thank you. So I, I bet most of the people listening are adult women. And if you're mothers of sons, then you've probably noticed um, that the doctor is looking for certain milestones every visit, right? And it's typically up until eight that they are looking at their private parts too, at their genitalia, just to kind of assess what's called tanner stages. And we have five of those, um, one being kind of like normal childhood and five being like fully grown adult. Now, I think we could break it down further to make it easier for parents to know what stage is my kid at. Because, you know, after eight, I don't think I've necessarily seen my kid's genitalia that much myself. You know, up until yeah, then, no. like we're helping them shower and get ready and stuff. Yeah. Um, so we'll see it. But then after that, they become very private and have their body autonomy and their modesty and their covering up. Um, so we don't really have access. So that's if the doctor checks, which is typically going to be if they play sports, their annual um, physical exam. Um, or their annual physical fitness exam for sports. But, you know, some schools aren't even doing those anymore. Um, I've noticed with my middle schooler, 
the middle school doesn't require it. So the doctor and I have not seen his penis in some time. Um, and I kind of have to rely on his assessment on what stage he's at. I think for parents, um, the most important thing that they need to know is just kind of the what you were saying, some of the clinical features that are there. Um, and the things that we can follow up until eight years old are probably the presence or absence of pubic hair. And then uh, one of the big things I think would be body odor. So mm. if you're noting body odor that early, my concern is always precocious pr- puberty, which is puberty that's early onset. And there can be a lot of pathologic reasons for that happening that need to be worked up because we don't want the kids to grow too fast or to hit puberty too fast. Because puberty means most importantly that you know, you're know you going to have this growth, but then that growth is going to stop. And those um, ends of your long bones are going to seal and you don't want an adult of short stature. I mean, this is not, I'm not anti-short people. I just happen to be a very tall woman and everybody I've ever met in my life has been like, would you give me a couple of inches? I don't know. You probably have the same problem, um, Dr. Lodi. So um, I will say that um, for a lot of the moms, especially Muslim moms, we freak out when we see erections. We're not going to see them when our boys are older because they're not going to share it. We'll see them when they're little and guaranteed they will have it because, you know, they're in the bathtub, they're playing or they're playing with each other and they will get erections and it feels good and they're going to play with it. And that to us is like so horrifying because sex is so um, stigmatized and so um, traumatic for a lot of people that they continue to pass that on and will then shame the children. Like, Sometimes nonverbal children can have this kind of arousal. And like you said, it can be for no, uh, a one-year-old is not aroused because he's sexual. He's aroused because something touched his penis and feels good. Or he's really happy about something and it felt good and he got a little erection there. I think it's adorable, you know, because at least I know that the muscles and the nerves are working. So I'm like, great, perfect. There's no reason to shame the child because they're not getting aroused by the erection. And the same goes for teenagers. Like you said, they're not necessarily dirty boys that are looking at porn or, you know, that are are getting off on something that we don't want them to get off on. So, um, I think it's really, really important to destigmatize that, first of all. And if we're having that reaction of like shock and horror, like that means we need to work on ourselves first because we're bringing a value judgment to a very normal physiologic process. I'm going to take a break here and see if I answered your question. Yes, yes. No, you did. Absolutely. Okay, perfect. Um, So again, as parents, we're looking... Um, on external things and trusting the doctor up until about eight years old, 10 years old to like check on our kids, like genitalia, make sure that it's all okay and tell us if something's wrong. Um, If we note things like excessive uh, pubic hair or the beginning of pubic hair before eight years old, or if we notice body odor in our children, that's when we should go to the doctor and say, I'm a little bit worried because I don't think my eight-year-old should be wearing deodorant. That said, I started deodorant at nine because, you know, I... In this country, and I think in many other countries, puberty can be as early as nine years old, especially in girls. So, you know, just be prepared. Um, And I was always a taller girl and, you know, chunkier. So it is possible. Um, So what I'm going to do is just kind of very bare bones, describe the Tanner stages and uh, compare it to what you as a parent are going to be looking at. So stage one is just your child 
as a child up until about eight years old, and it's going to be different for boys and girls. Obviously, with boys, you're not going to really see anything, but you're going to see the absence of your pubic hair. No big deal. By tanner stage two, when they're a little bit older, you're going to notice maybe they're starting to have a little bit of leg hair. Maybe they're starting to have a little bit of fine arm hair. No need to panic. It's normal as long as, again, you don't have um, those... uh, precocious uh, pubescent signs, you're fine. But of course, we have that period when they're starting preschool, elementary school, they're just rapidly growing. So you can expect about three to four inches per year that they're going to grow at that point. Um, And now this is the point where the doctor is not checking their genitalia anymore because these two tanner stages are also associated in boys with lengthening of the penis, growth of the scrotum. And if there's ever a problem, this is the time to fix it because they're still young. So as Muslims, we circumcise. And so if the boys have not been hygienic or if you've not been involved in the hygiene, there can sometimes be like adhesions, which means the base of the foreskin, the little remnant that's left can create, you know, it has scar tissue from the circumcision. If the boys aren't cleaning around that, or if you're not helping them clean around that, sometimes it can stick to the glands, which is the head of the penis. And, you know, it, it's painful to remove it. And while they're children, we can still kind of use a topical anesthetic and a blunt probe and like break the scar tissue and and take it back to what we as Muslims expect um, and think is hygienic and necessary for our Islamic practice. Um, You're not going to be able to do that as they get older and then they will need surgery probably under anesthesia. So you want to hit it early and you're trusting the doctor. Like, make sure you ask, like, does the circumcision look good? Is there any scar tissue? Um, when we get to stage uh, uh, three, this is probably what we're noticing. The voice is changing. Um, they're shooting up as much as six inches like over the summer. Um, wow. their, eat, their appetite is exponentially high. We're starting to see some labile mood, not just in girls. I think it's a very common misconception that girls are like, premenstrual and, you know, just the misogyny that is associated with that. But boys can have those labile moods too, where they're crying one minute and like angry one minute. You walk into the room in the morning and they're like already pissed off at you. And it's like, there's no reason. And it's really important not to take that personally because, you know, we need to understand that this is a natural, normal phase of their physical and emotional mental development. We went through it too. So we just need to tap into, you know, kind of the pathos that we experienced when we were going through this. And when we were going through the label mood, our immigrant parents like beat it out of us. They were like, oh, hell no, you're not talking to me like that. Um, Or who do you think you are? Go to your room and blah, blah, blah. And it was like, all I was experiencing was the hormonal fluctuations. And that was misinterpreted as obstinance or um, I guess the word in Urdu is batamiz or in yeah. Arabi's aib. And that's not what we were trying to do. You know, we were just experiencing it. So you'll see it in boys as well. Um, what else will you see? Did I talk about the height? And the, yes. they'll have the pubic hair and the penile lengthening, but I don't know any moms who will know the penis length, the scrotal health, and the amount of pubic hair that their kids um, will have at this stage. Because let's face yeah. it, they're teenagers now. They have some, um, I guess, their own body image issues. They're trying to grow into it and trying to figure out themselves. Um, right. It is good to know these stages and explain to them, hey, honey, you're going to start noticing these things. Okay. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, 
10 or stage four, this is even until senior year, these kids are growing. Again, um, you might see another five inches happen. Like you'll see a quick and then a little stabilization uh, in the middle of high school. And then towards the end, as they reach their adult form, they can still grow another five inches. So a lot of moms panic. My son's only five foot one and his voice has already changed and he's already shaving and this and that is happening. Relax because there's still more growth to happen. Boys have a longer period of puberty than girls do. With girls, it's a little mm-hmm. obvious. You get your period that's puberty. With boys, it's very extended. A lot of the reason why um, boys have a lot of difficult time in puberty because there's no set time, uh, set event, and set rituals. You know, having a period is almost ritualistic, right? Like there's practices mm-hmm. that we have. Yeah. Um, associated with menstrual blood that they don't have. So it's very confusing for them and um, we can't put our finger on it. So how can we expect them to? And then 10 or stage five is your full adult form. There's penile length and there's no correct penile length. Okay. Um, No matter what they say. And you know, your full body hair. Now the difficulty arises as Muslims and pubic hair, because if the doctor's looking for pubic hair in our sons at their sports physicals, he might not find it. Because again, cleanliness is next to godliness is very Muslim too. And a lot of times it's easier for Muslims to just remove their pubic hair. So the boys won't have armpit hair and they won't have scrotal hair to depend on. Um, So that can be an issue. Um, But I think if you just explain that to the doctor and say, no, no, you know, it grows. I just shave it every week because it's easier than clipping it. Then um, I think you've got all of your bases covered. So I'm going to take a pause there and let you insert any questions you have or insert any gaps in what I've explained so far. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, you know, what you're saying is very important. And actually what I just learned what uh, from what you were saying is that the boys have that it's almost like what we call like a bimodal right? Growth spurt, which I didn't even realize where they have a a little bit, you know, that growth spurt and then it plateaus and then they have another one because my middle one, actually, you know, I was um, thinking that perhaps he's reached it. And um, I don't know if you're going to mention it, but I know that um, some doctors will do like those x-rays of the hand Mm -hmm. to see whether or not, you know, people, um, children have stopped growing or not. Um, but it's, um, it's really important to, to know that, that there are, the boys actually do have those two, um, growth spurts Uh, actually. And then I know, um, since we won't get to it as much, but you know, it's interesting with girls. What I read is that typically it's two to three years after they get their period that they stop growing. Right. Right. And sometimes it can be longer. It's case by case, but generally, it, you can still grow up to two to three inches after your period. I was devastated uh, when my daughter had her period at nine because, you know, oh, she was she was tall enough for a woman. But, you know, there were multiple reasons for me to be devastated that my child was now growing into a woman. Um, but then also that she wouldn't be as tall as I expected. But she's continued to grow. So, you know. That's been reassuring. But as a parent, like your doctor mind like turns off, right? So you're just like, oh my God. And we experience the same things that other moms do, but probably worse because we know like the worst case situations. So we don't ever think it's like a cold. It's like straight up like, you know, pneumonia always or something, something crazy and unheard of. So yeah. Yeah. But no. Okay. So that's, that's awesome. So tell me more. (laughs) Um, I would say that especially when they're around 10 or two. And if you notice that they're having erections, I would say at any point, 
that they're having erections, even when they're nonverbal, to explain to them that, okay, this is fine. This is in the privacy of the bathroom or in your room, but we're not going to go sharing this with everybody in the world. This is not something that you want to show anybody. And that sense of modesty, I think, is really important for all of us. You know, Islam is just so common sense because from the beginning, you know, we teach modesty so much to prevent future problems. Um, uh, things like sexual abuse, unintended harassment, um, or intended harassment, even I would say. So to make sure that early on, even nonverbal children are not shamed about what their body is normally and naturally doing. And then to establish guidelines and rules of this is where this is okay. And this is where this is not okay. And I promise you, even nonverbal children understand that if you said it early, early, early. Um, I would say another thing to do, even with nonverbal children, I would say, especially in nonverbal children, this is what I tell my kids. If anybody tells you not to tell Ami and Abu, not to tell your parents, that's shaitan, that's the devil. So you run and you come tell us, okay? Because we want to make sure that nobody's grooming our children except for us. And the only grooming we're doing is healthy grooming to make them functional, safe, healthy adults in the future. God willing, right? right? So it's important to establish even in the nonverbal stage, um, in the verbal stage when we start potty training, these are the correct names of your genitalia. This is a penis. These are testicles. Um, Mm -hmm. The boys early on, my boys early on figured out these, there's balls in there. Like it's like marbles. What are they doing in there? And I was like, they're not balls. Those are testicles. And the function of the testicles is this. And the function of your penis is this. Um, and I didn't get into like the penis is used for sex because they were young at that point. Um, I think a lot of us get frustrated because we're like, well, you know, we're told to talk to our children and give them the right verbiage uh, based on their age. But what is that? And I would say it's based on your comfort, but more and more as we're hearing from parents on the podcast, the most common question we get is how do we talk to our kids about sex? And um, what we're finding more and more is people are like you, where they're just like waiting for the right time or their kids said no. But if early on you insert this talk of sexual and reproductive health as just God's creation that's normal and healthy and beautiful, you can talk about the function right there at that age. But as they Mm. get older, when they're hitting that nine and 10, hey, you may still, you know, maybe they've extinguished that those erections happen when they're little. They probably did if they were before three years old, right? So now at 10, they might, fabric might feel good. Maybe some food feels good. Um, Arguably, when boys are together and they're wrestling, that could feel good, you know, and freak them out. Um, Am I gay? is um, a common concern that I hear from at least my son and their friends. And it's like, no, just an erection from that does not make you gay. Um, And it's okay. You may notice this happens. There are boys as young as 10, 11 who are having those nocturnal emissions, what we commonly call wet dreams. Not to freak out. I would believe that a lot of kids don't realize that that's what that is and think they wet the bed and not tell mom and dad. So it's important Mm. for us to initiate that conversation at 10 and say, sometimes you might notice that you're waking up wet and that's just your body, you know, getting rid of a normal body fluid that you're going to use later on to make babies. But right now it's najasa, it's unclean. We have to clean it off. You have to take a shower and get into the habit of taking a shower first thing in the morning, um, even if you don't have it, just so that practice is there. But 
arguably that can happen at any time of the day. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. night, usually because the boys are unconscious and, you know, it's maybe they are having dreams. Who knows? Um, porn is so readily available to them all the yeah. time now. You know, um, I think it's something like 63% of Muslim children, including 10 year olds, have been exposed to pornography already in this country. The uh, Family and Youth Institute is a Muslim organization that does such research, and their report on sex and pornography in the Muslim community came out this year. So if you want to go check it out, it's the yeah. FYI.org. Um, uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, so correct anatomical names, what their functions are. I think it's you have to establish that early, then by 10, they should know the additional functions of the penis um, for boys I'm talking about in particular. This is going to be used eventually to have babies, and this is where you're going to put it. You're going to put it in a vagina. And to me, that was comfortable. I was comfortable telling my boys, and they were like, ew, gross, we're never going to do that. Girls are nasty. At 10, they're nasty. By 14, they're not so nasty. Um, But it's really important to uh, talk to them about consent their own and others. Like you don't touch anybody without their consent because now your penis is like a working functioning penis. It can do things that adult bodies can do. You're just not aware. And these are the situations where it's okay to use it. If you get an erection, you feel aroused and you're not sure what to do. You can teach them to masturbate. You know, that's something that ideally your husband would be doing, but I found Second generation guys are not teaching their kids this. So it's really up to us moms to teach our boys, okay, you can go to the bathroom, you can be in your room, and you can do this in order to release this tension. And this is what you're going to do after. You're going to do whistle. So I know a lot of people are falling on the floor right now like, oh, my God, Muslims don't masturbate. So I'll let you interject here and ask me whatever or comment wherever about what I've said so far. So, of course, you know, as we know, that's – not the case. Muslims do masturbate. And we know that, um, you know, if, if somebody out there is thinking that that doesn't happen, then they're living in a fantasy world. I don't know where they're living. <laughs> it's not this world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but that's, that's a given. And, um, you know, I think it's so, so important what you stated in terms of teaching the correct language, right? The correct anatomical language, not calling it a cookie or whatever. I don't know what people use, you know, in terms of um, vocabulary. You know, some people straight up call it shame, shame. You're shame, shame. Yeah. What is that? You know? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, you know, not only are we, I don't know what we're doing with it, (laughs) causing a lot more trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Instilling that sex and uh, our our bodies, right? Saying that mm-hmm. our bodies are shameful, really. Exactly. So, exactly. I mean, that's that's obviously a, something that we have to. I think all of us need to work toward um, creating more of a sex positive um, relationship, not only within our own families, but uh, with ourselves and also in our communities, right? And not shaming others and not bringing our own cultural baggage of that sex is dirty, it's shameful, it's mm-hmm. bad you know, to our kids, that then they feel guilty and bad if, you know, they get an erection or, you know, they see an image and they feel aroused, right? It's it's all Mm -hmm. natural. So I think that those are very important things that um, we talk about and that we relate um, to our children so that they, you know, become positive themselves. Yeah. 
And that um, sex positivity also prevents abuse because when the kids know the right name and they've already been taught to always come to you when somebody says, don't tell your parents, they will tell you that this person touched my penis, this person touched my vagina. If they didn't have those words, you would be stuck in this weird, vague situation. Like something happened, but I don't know exactly what happened. But now your child has shared that verbiage with you. Now you can address the perpetrator. Now you can decide how you want to proceed. And I think this is really important. And our episode last week talks about sex abuse in families where, you know, a child was able to talk to their parent, but didn't have the the right words in the language. And so it was a little bit ambiguous and the family's reaction, you know, it was positive, but could have been ambiguous in some situations. I know personally for me, because I didn't have the language, um, it was ambiguous. Um, for many, many years until I learned the language and was able to connect the memory to what I had just learned, the scientific words. Um, So it's really, really critical that we uh, teach it early. And I know, I know, two, three-year-olds, when they learn a new word, they're going to say it everywhere. I guarantee they'll say it in the masjid. I guarantee they'll say it at school. I guarantee they'll say it at daycare. I guarantee, double guarantee, they're going to say it at your parents' house. Yeah. And your parents will not sure. have a that, time. Yeah. that will definitely happen. You know, my mom would be like, bah, your kids just say penis all the time. Make them stop calling it that. And I'm like, no, we have to call it a penis. Like that is what they're learning. And you have to call it that too. And she's like, no, 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 no. This is so shameful. This is so shameful. I'm like, that is the problem. I mean, that's, it's not shameful yeah. because if God created it, it's perfect. And that's what you teach the kids early on. What's happening to your body is God created. Therefore it's not wrong. And even the scholars will say, you know, the default in Islam is it's permissible because there's very few things that are haram. It's us who makes everything haram, haram, haram. If we're telling our children that X, Y, or Z or A, B, or C is haram, the onus is on us as parents to go back and look it up and verify. Okay. Because I took masturbation as haram at face value as an adult. I'm kicking myself in hindsight now because I wanted to make sure. So I checked um, for my kids and learned on an episode of Mavi Will Muslim when we brought a scholar on that there are differences of opinion on masturbation. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. if there's going to be a sin committed, then it's better to just masturbate, right? Yes. Um, yes. Obviously, it's fast. Um, fast if you're not able to control your urges, but I'm not going to ask an eight, nine-year-old to fast, you know, probably on the weekends, but they're not going to understand. Like, they're going to be like, no, I'm still having the urges. What do I do? You know, as an adult, you right. can be like, oh, I'm fasting, think good thoughts, divert yourself. But eight, nine-year-old, 10-year-olds aren't going to be able to do that. Um, so we really need to teach them in a safe way what you can do. Because again, when you grow up in a sex-negative environment and people are taught shame associated with their body and the body's natural, normal, physiologic functions, then abuse is going to happen too. Because now that person that has these urges needs an outlet. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to the nonverbals. Um, they're yes. going to go to the kids they think are young enough to shut up about it. And that's where abuse often happens. What is it? Something like 30% of the perpetrators are known to the child and are probably one to first to second degree relatives. So you want to make sure that you give healthy outlets. It's especially a lot of perpetrators are in this, you know, um, uh, ambiguous 10 to, I would say even 13, 
14 area. I, I think by 14 is pretty obvious, but that middle school age, basically, um, a lot of perpetrators come from there because they've grown up in sex negative environments and think that something's wrong with them. Um, or let me find some place to um, get it out, if you will. And this isn't just limited to Muslim communities. This knows no race. This knows no ethnicity. This knows no religion. Um because all kids are developing pretty much at the same um, on the same spectrum and in the same way, and I would argue that in America it's a pretty sex negative culture too. There's so much taboo associated with masturbation Absolutely. even today, right? Absolutely. So um, we don't have a monopoly on sex negativity as Muslims. We just do it so much better than <laughs> so many other um, <laughs> religious groups. <laughs> You know, and that's actually a very good point. And I was that you bring that up because I was just talking to my eldest this morning and mm-hmm. he specifically asked me that question. He's 16 and he said, do you, do you feel that Muslims, Muslims are say like Muslim women, um, you know, have more sex negativity than other cultures? And I said, absolutely not. This is mm-hmm. prevalent throughout all cultures, all races, everyone. It's not just Muslims. Right. Right. It's just that you and I, right, we tend to focus on Muslims because we're Muslim, but right, it's exactly. not, it's not, you know, and I don't want people walking away thinking that it's just, well, absolutely not. You know, it's, and people that say follow you on your Instagram or follow me, you know, are not all Muslims, right? People are going there just exactly. for knowledge learn and um you know how to better themselves are you know and and teach right and teach their Mm -hmm. kids and be more sex positive themselves because we see that that is a problem right that we are uh growing up as people that have a very negative view about sex and sexual health and puberty and we don't know how to talk about it and it's important that we work on ourselves so that we can help others right yeah right um, I think in addition to teaching the masturbation, it's really important when they're getting on that cusp of puberty, about 10 years old, to start talking to them. Hey, you might notice that you're getting a little bit of hair in your armpits. You might be getting yeah. a little bit of hair in your scrotum. So it kind of starts in the midline and then it, you know, kind of covers and grows out that way. So you want to teach them early on the, you know, these are the safe ways to perform hygiene. So a 10 year old, I would not give them any kind of blade. I would give them like some small, small, safe, blunt scissors and be like, okay, keep that trimmed so that, you know, we're in a state of cleanliness so that we can pray as Muslims, right? So you teach them that early. Um, with girls, it's a whole nother basket, which I'm sure you covered um, before in your part one. But with boys also like to keep their body hair in check and um, to make sure that they're smelling good and doing all the things that is the sunnah is important. Because if you teach the pubic hair grooming really late, you know, by by 13, 14, they're accountable for their prayers, but they don't know what the hygiene is associated with it. So you want to make sure you teach them that you're teaching them to shower every morning. That's a great opportunity for them to check and get comfortable touching themselves. Like this is my body and tell them like, while you're doing this, you may get aroused. You're not gay. You're not a weirdo. It can happen. It's just because there's so many dang nerve endings down there. Like it may happen, but we're doing this for a hygiene purpose. If you're going in like business-minded, like I got to mow the lawn, like you're done, um, then you keep it matter of fact and teach them to keep it matter of fact. And inshallah, there won't be any problems, God willing. But, you know, again, if you never had that conversation, your kid's not going to know. And they could be like a 20-year-old in college, never having groomed that lawn, 
and you're creating problems for your child. And there are, um, especially if they end up, I mean, you know, people are going to have sex. I am not living in any kind of la-la land that my sons are not going to be sexually exposed at some time. My default for boys is that they will experiment. And I don't want them catching any kind of lice or, you know, other diseases. So I want to make sure there's nothing down there to catch um, catch anything and to keep them as hygienic as possible. Yeah. Well, you mentioned actually about the hygiene for girls, um, mm-hmm. you know, islamically speaking. We actually did not touch on that. So if you want to just touch on that really quickly. Um, yeah. I, I want to, um, when girls, so when my daughter had her period, we had a peer, period party and yeah. we invite my sister's idea. It was, I'm not a genius by any means, but it's a genius idea. Like, please yeah. have a period party. Um, yeah. we invited all these girls and some too. of them did not uh, go ahead. I said, we did that too for my, uh, one of my nieces. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. It's a great idea. So we invited like all these little girls, um, around my, you know, my daughter's friends and some of them had not had their periods yet. They had a lot of questions. Um, and they were like, oh, you know, and my daughter is petrified of blood, you know, you know, little kids, I'm just bleeding. Oh my God, am I going to die? It's like, no, you're not going to die. You're not, you're not bleeding. You're okay. Um, but this is actual blood, right? So to get them to understand that this is safe, this is normal. You're not going to lose all of your um, blood in your body. This is very like limited, um, uh, both both in the time frame that it's going to happen and where it's going to happen. Um, but also that the blood is unclean and considered also najasa, but you're not unclean because all of us were made to feel in my generation that during your period, you are unclean, particularly people from the subcontinent, because yeah. in the subcontinent, remember the other religions and cultures that are around Muslims there are very misogynistic, right? And for them, the period is dirty. The women have to leave the house historically and sleep in another place because they're that dirty. They have their own dishes. I mean, they're pretty much outcast during yeah. that period. Yeah. Um, Islam doesn't do that. That's redunkadunk. Like this is going to happen, you know? Right. So um, act normal. It used to be, um, I was taught that the clothes that you wear during your period are also dirty, even if you didn't get blood on them. So you wow. have to rewash everything, no matter how fancy. And, you know, some of our fancy clothes we have to, we used to have to wash by hand because it couldn't, our parents wouldn't send it to the dry cleaners. You can't put it through the washing machine. So um, even anything that touches you is unclean. You're so unclean, you can't even touch the Quran. You can't read the words of God because you are an unclean person. No. So it was really important. And it's a great opportunity for Muslim moms to teach girls, you're not unclean, that blood is unclean, and this is how we clean it. We use the hydrogen peroxide. Here's your spray bottle. You're good to go. And then, you know, on your body, you want to make sure always, um, even with your period, you want to be wiping front to back to avoid any kind of infections, remove all of the blood. Don't freak out if there's a clot. And then um, because you've probably taught them before their p- onset of period, trim your pubic hair, it's a lot easier for them to clean it. Um, some people will say it's uh, sinful or not allowed to remove your body hair during your period. I have not ever found any proof of that. So if the girls need to, they can. Um, but you know, I'm going to let you look that up because that's important for some people. They've grown up with that and they, they stick to it. Um, I forgot the name of the book that, uh, Pakistani women ascribe to as like their 
their rules for how to engage in sex, men, and hygiene. And it says some really funky things. So beach <laughs> deserver. It's beach deserver. Yeah. All of our moms read that and believed um, a lot of the hoo-ha that's in there. But yeah, your hoo-ha needs to be cleaned um, appropriately front to back. And then at the end of the period, you make what's called rusel, which is um, the purifying shower. And there's a particular way to do it. And you'll teach your daughter how to do that. And then, you know, move on and not make it a big deal and not um, have any, again, negativity or body shaming associated with the period. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, having the proper terminology again for women as well is very important, right? Calling it mm-hmm. vulva and um, having the girls use the proper language so that they know, um, again, if somebody touches whatever, that um, how to go ahead and report that and um, get help if you know, if that situation hopefully will not, but if it does come up, they have the proper vocabulary to use to let you know what's going on. I think it's something like 89% of 10 year olds have already seen porn, right? So that means our elementary school kids, 10 and younger, have already seen some kind of porn or have been exposed to something that maybe they were a little too young to. So it's not uncommon. You should ask your kid, like, how was school today? Um, So I'm really hypervigilant. Um, because of the, I was molested when I was four. So I am always like, did anybody touch you? Did anybody do anything? Especially if I'm not supervising the kids and at school, you know, they're gone for eight hours a day. So did anybody touch you? Oh, well, you know, this person slapped my butt or this guy like, you know, sidled up behind me and was like rubbing up and down. And it's just another kid, another minor that has discovered the touch feels good. And they're doing that. So with that, that's experimenting. But that child who's rubbing up on my kid did not get my kid's consent and my kid did not like it. So that is, it would be considered assault if that other child, that peer was older. But what I have to, I had to explain to my kids and I encourage all mothers to um, teach their kids is nobody has the right to touch you without your permission. Whether they're Mm. a friend, whether they're a teacher, whether they're a doctor, whether it's me or your dad. So um, you have to say yes. And if there's anything you don't like, you turn around and you say, no, I don't care who it is. And then you come tell me. So that's something absolutely to take to the principal because um, there's a chance, there's a chance, 90% sure that that kid is just physiologically feeling good and reacting to it. But there's that small chance that that kid's been exposed to some kind of sexual act or been abused him or herself himself. And so um, if you report it to the principal and take it to the teacher, you might be able to uncover that and help another child. So in that interest, I would say, go ahead and report it. Don't just cover it up and say, oh, it's not a big deal. I would take it to the principal. I wouldn't even take it to the teacher. I would take it straight to school administration. So um, consent should be taught super, super early. I would, I think potty training was for us. So we had so ingrained on them, nobody touches your penis, nobody touches your vagina, that when they're potty training and now we're teaching them, you know, we're washing for them because they're not going to wash uh, uh-huh. well. So we're performing the astinja. And I remember, I mean, I have long fingers, right? So I was like washing my son. And I guess I, you know, he goes, hey, you touch my penis. Don't touch my penis. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't feel it, but he did. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And you know, the nanny was there and she heard and she's like, Oh, I'm sorry. You told me to tell them that. So I always every day, like that's kind of our mantra on the way to school and back from school. And I'm like, 
I'm giving you a raise because that's exactly what I want. Like, I don't care who it is. So again, those are like, they're getting potty trained at what, 18 months to two years old. So you want to make sure and give them those words and give them that awareness that they have the right Right. to say yes or no to um, touch. And if they're saying yes to whatever somebody's sidling up behind them and doing things, then that's normal experimentation that children will do. And, you know, if it's at school, clothes are on, kids are going to do it you know, um, don't freak out. But I would still talk to admin and be like, hey, let's just make sure that everybody's coming from a safe place and is going to go to a safe place. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge to kids in the interest of sex positivity to tell them that it's normal to have desire. You know, that is a mm-hmm. God-given thing. Like even Adam was lonely. That's why Eve was made. You know, he had desire. Right, yeah, so, yeah. um, Eve was the answer because women are the answer to all of men's always. problems. Always. Always. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, in any case, I think that sex positivity is going to be bred by saying you will have desire and desire is normal. And this is how we deal with it Islamically. And you can insert whatever you're comfortable with, whether it's masturbation, whether it's fasting, whether it's praying more, whether it's getting more active in sports. So that's kind of the fallback for our family. If you keep your mind and body active, then you're not going to, you know, perseverate on these particular ideas or these desires. And it's okay to desire a girl, but if she has no interest in you and she's not even consenting to talk to you, then you, you need to back off. You know, um, I think I went the opposite of misogyny and taught my boys that, uh, even if a woman sets you on fire, if a girl sets you on fire, you're not allowed to hit her back or say anything. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. So yeah, they've learned that since they were little, you know, it's like, I don't care if she sets fire to you, you will not lift a finger. <laughs> they were like, why are you such a feminist? It's like, uh, I've experienced enough to be one. So, <laughs> um, in any case, it's also good to acknowledge to your level of comfort that mom and dad still have sex. Sex is allowed in Islam. It is halal in Islam in these circumstances. And this is what's going to happen. Um, my kids for a long time, I think up until my oldest was 12, thought that mom and dad just had sex the four times to have them. Like it's just to conceive when you're ready to have children. So I think they they said they heard it from somewhere, but it wasn't my husband and me. So it must've been other adults or children who heard it from somewhere and taught them that, oh no, your parents, when they wanted to have kids, that's the only time they had sex. And I was like, no, I assure you it's not. And they're like, why would you do something like that? And again, they said, why would you do something dirty like that? It's wow. because their friends they're hanging out with are being taught sex negative language sex is dirty. And I have to keep coming back at different ages and telling them sex is not dirty. Sex is not dirty. Sex is not dirty. It's not allowed in these circumstances. It's allowed in these circumstances. And people do it a lot because it is pleasurable because pleasure is not a sin. You know, you shouldn't think that pleasure is a sin, whether you're um, a child or whether you're an adult. So awesome. But I think we are running out of time, Osman. But I do want to continue this conversation. And I think it was awesome because I think it's so important for us to not only know about uh, puberty in boys and girls, but also to talk about all the things related to that, right? And all of the 
extrapolations and about sex and about pleasure and about consent and about autonomy and about your own body space, right? And you brought up so many amazing topics that I think um, you and I will have to come back and discuss more about because I think it's so important. You know, consent is huge, right? Mm -hmm. And again, I agree with you. I think that um, sexual abuse happens uh, to minors and to children because they're not able to verbalize. They're not able to give consent. They don't know what's right and wrong. And oftentimes the perpetrator blames the child, right? Mm -hmm. And so then they grow up with this feeling of guilt and shame and dirty, and then they take that to their relationships. So, you know, I think that it's awesome that you brought up all these very, very important and sensitive topics um, that is uh, important for us to discuss. So I appreciate you bringing them up and I'm so happy you are on and I can't wait to have you on again. I feel like this has to be like a uh, even though this is part two of puberty, it has to be like part one of sex and Islam. And then we continue. Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. I mean, sex is an ongoing conversation because I don't know what your experience has been now that you're an adult talking to your mom about sex is probably a lot easier than when you were younger, right? Um, oh, sometimes, right? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Sometimes it's traumatizing for me now as an adult to hear what my mom says. And it's like, I don't need to know that. <laughs> but that's my problem. I have to fix my mindset. My mom is a human being with human needs that are normal and halal, permissible. I have to listen to her now because she's going through her changes and it's, you know, bouncing ideas and experiences off of each other and making sure that we're, you know, approaching sex and having sex in a healthy way. I think it's an ongoing lifetime conversation. So it's not like once your kid is out of your house that you're done talking to them about it, you're going to continue that conversation and be like, hey, if you're having sex, are you being safe? I know everybody's like, my kid's going to go to college. I'm not going to have sex. Ask anyway, you know, and advise anyway. Always give um, precautions. So. 100%. So, uh, well, I think we are done here and it's been real and really intimate. And remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical or religious advice. So please see your healthcare provider and or religious leader if you have any questions. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsadaf.com. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Thank you.